Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a military history podcast for non-military listeners about battles and conflicts that change the course of history. The Volga is Europe's longest river, and also its largest river, in terms of sheer volume of water discharged and its watershed. Eleven of the twenty largest cities in Russia, including Moscow, are found in the Volga watershed, which include many tributaries. It's widely regarded as the National River of Russia, often referred to by Russians as Volga Matushka, which means Mother Volga. The Volga begins northwest of Moscow and southeast of St. Petersburg, flowing predominantly at first in an east-southeast direction, bending ever more southerly until it reaches the city of Kazan, when it turns definitely to the south. All told, the river flows 2,193 miles from start to finish in the Caspian Sea. Importantly, along the western shore of the Caspian is the city of Baku, the capital of modern-day Azerbaijan. In 1942, the Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic, a part of the Soviet Union. It was then a seaport, as it is today, and the hub of massive oil fields around the city and at Maykop and Grozny, that since 1911 had pumped the black gold essential to industrial might and, of course, mechanized warfare. From the Caucasian oil fields in this very southernmost region of European Russia, Oil was transported in large part by barges from Baku to the Volga estuary at the north end of the Caspian Sea, and then up the Volga and its tributaries to innumerable terminals and destinations behind the lines of the Red Army in 1942, where it was refined and converted to gasoline to power the aircraft, tanks, trucks, and other tracked and wheeled vehicles that made up the mechanized part of the Red Army resisting the Nazi invasion. Another city, located on the southern portion of the Volga, at a point where the river comes closest to another great Russian river, the Don, that leads to the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea, sits on about 30 miles of shoreline on the western bank of the river, the city of Volgograd. In 1942, however, the city was named after the Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin, Stalingrad. And this is the story of the most desperate titanic struggle and battle of the 20th century that was fought there. Indeed, the word Stalingrad is 
used almost as a concept term nowadays. It was a Stalingrad, suggests a brutal fight to the death. Or even as an adjective, a Stalingrad approach suggests a stubborn retreat or advance, street by street, house by house. Stalingrad conjures up suffering and death under the most cruel, brutal, and unforgiving circumstances, capable of human imagination. Stalingrad summons to mind images of a city totally bomb-blasted and reduced to rubble. Stalingrad suggests the limits, the nadir of human savagery, without mercy and almost without end, inflicted by human beings on their fellow man. The scale of the slaughter at Stalingrad is calculable in numbers, but incalculable in terms of the human misery that preceded, accompanied, and followed the battle itself, and the viciousness with which it was consistently inflicted. This misery continued long after the battle, or the war in which it was fought. It's estimated, for example, that some 91,000 German soldiers were captured, including their commander, Friedrich von Paulus. Of these, only five or 6,000 of them ever returned to their homelands. The rest died slow, miserable deaths, marching to Russian prison and labor camps, or during their long captivity in frozen, isolated Siberian gulags, until what remained of them were released in 1955, some ten years after the war. The USSR unquestionably inflicted the greatest disaster in German military history on the Sixth Army of the German Wehrmacht. But if it's possible, Stalingrad was a military disaster for both sides. A quarter million German and Romanian corpses were recovered by the Soviets in the immediate aftermath and vicinity of the city of Stalingrad after the battle. But total Axis casualties, German, Romanian, Ukrainian, Italian, and Hungarian, exceeded 800,000 wounded, missing, captured, or dead. On the Soviet side, Russian military historians estimate over 1,100,000 dead, wounded, missing, or captured. Another 40,000 civilians in Stalingrad were killed in bombings, executions, or by being caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, by crossfire, bombs, disease, and starvation after failing to be evacuated in time. All wars, particularly those on the scale of this one, inevitably involve death and misery. But Stalingrad stands almost alone, the supreme example of the limits of humanity, both in heroic and diabolical terms. Did it have to happen? Did it have to be this way, this monstrous? We'll explore that question today as we delve deeply into the Battle of Stalingrad.
Let's begin by placing the battle in context. In this, you may want to listen to one of our earlier podcasts, The Battle of Moscow, that took place in late 1941, when the German army nearly captured the Soviet capital. But I'll briefly summarize the position of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union in 1942, leading up to the battle. In this podcast, I'll rely much on one of the most outstanding books ever written about this battle, Anthony Beaver's Stalingrad, The Fateful Siege, published by Viking Penguin in 1998. This magisterial book is especially insightful into the qualities of both Hitler and Stalin that made them such butchers as military commanders, the bane of their generals and officers, and in the case of Hitler, certainly responsible for losing the war on the battlefields near Stalingrad. But he also has delved deeply into post-Soviet archives of the Red Army and eyewitness accounts of the fighting by the actual foot soldiers on both sides. It's a masterful account of this campaign and is beautifully written and gripping in its vivid descriptions of the fighting, some of which I'll relate to you in our narrative today. Now, you'll recall that after the defeat of France in the summer of 1940, Great Britain was the only major power at war with Germany. An air war, the Battle of Britain, failed to sweep the Royal Air Force from the sky or the Royal Navy from the English Channel in 1940 and 41, leading to a stalemate in the West. Meanwhile, encroachments by Soviet Russia in the East, the annexation of the Baltic states, a brief war with Finland followed by annexation of territory from her, and annexation of a part of Romania, all without consultation with Germany, created a diplomatic climate of mutual suspicion and resentment between Germany and the USSR. The German dictator's dreams of conquering a vast eastern empire, first articulated in his autobiography in the mid-1920s, arose again in his mind in 1941 as the ultimate grand strategic goal of the thousand-year Reich he believed he was founding wiping out Jewish Bolshevism, subjugating the inferior Slavic race. These dark fantasies proved irresistible to Hitler's mind, beckoning him to his own ruin and that of his country. Hitler and the German general staff began to plan for a vast campaign against the USSR that became known as Operation Barbarossa. On June 22nd, 1941, a surprise, massive offensive erupted on the Soviet frontier from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Nazi Germany's forces were supplemented by Allied contributions, mainly from Romania, Hungary, Croatia, and Italy, especially on the southern front that will serve as the scene of our story. Barbarossa failed to destroy the Red Army and in October 1941 was followed by Operation Typhoon, which was the subject of our earlier podcast, The Battle of Moscow. This operation, like Barbarossa, succeeded in inflicting enormous casualties on the Soviet Union and the occupation of vast areas of territory. 
but failed once again to break the resistance of the Red Army or to take Moscow. Furthermore, in the process, the German army and its allies had sustained staggering casualties of their own. At the end of 1941, the Red Army succeeded in repulsing the German Wehrmacht with a surprise winter offensive around Moscow, using reserves that neither Hitler nor the German High Command suspected even existed. That counteroffensive had driven the Germans backward, about a hundred miles away from Moscow, until it ground to a halt in January 1942, exhausted in terms of supplies and manpower. At that point, the Eastern Front became static, as the armies endured the infamous Russian winter, which made operations, particularly mechanized operations with tanks and wheeled vehicles, virtually impossible on any scale. With the failure of German operations in 1941 to destroy the Red Army and to capture Moscow, Adolf Hitler dismissed the army's chief of staff, Walter von Braustich, and took for himself the title and supreme command of the German army. Numerous other experienced and even famous generals and commanders were sacked as well. Fedor von Bach, the overall commander of the Central Front before Moscow, and the famous panzer commander Hans Guderian being among the most prominent. Much of the needless waste of lives and tragedy of this war the war in the east between these two countries, was directly attributable to the control exercised over military command of both countries by their respective dictators, Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. Each of them had no formal education and little actual experience in military strategy or operations, yet both aggressively exercised their right to manage and direct not merely the strategic or grand strategic course of the war, but even military control at the operational and tactical levels at times. There would be disastrous consequences for both sides because of this that I'll describe to you in a few minutes. In the South, also exasperated by the slow progress of that army group in failing to reach the Don or Volga rivers in 1941, Hitler sacked the overall commander, Gerd von Rundstedt, replacing him with one of his favored Nazi generals, Walter von Reichenau. This in turn led to a shuffling of commanders of various armies and for our story of importance, the leadership of the German Sixth Army. In an unusual move, a general staff officer in Berlin, General Friedrich von Paulus, was appointed to the field command of the 6th Army, despite minimal actual experience in command of any large formations in the field. Let me talk to you a little bit about this famous or infamous general. Von Paulus had joined the army in 1910 and had fought in World War I. He joined the conservative Freikorps, fighting the Bolsheviks in the Weimar Republic after the war and shared Hitler's hatred of communism. He was a conscientious, meticulous staff officer in the peacetime Reichswehr. After the conquest of France in 1940, the army chief of staff, Halder, 
brought him to Berlin and placed him on the general staff. It was from this position that he was summoned to take command of the Sixth Army. The son of a state bureaucrat in Hesse, von Paulus was not a member of the Prussian Junker class, or for that matter of any aristocratic family, as so much of the higher echelons of the German officer corps were, even in Hitler's Reich. Von Paulus was self-conscious of his social inferiority. Soft-spoken, with impeccable manners, and fastidious of dress, von Paulus had, quote, an exaggerated respect for the chain of command, unquote, as Beaver writes in his book, which would have fateful consequences at Stalingrad. Cool and somewhat aloof, von Paulus nonetheless would demonstrate more care for his men than many German generals. On the other hand, he was certainly well aware of the notorious, brutal, and genocidal behavior of SS units who tracked behind the Sixth Army, murdering and massacring Jews, Bolsheviks, and partisans, and did nothing to stop it. He formed a bond with Reichenau when he became his chief in 1939. It was Reichenau who persuaded Hitler to appoint him as commander of the ill-fated Sixth Army on New Year's Day, 1942. Paulus had never even commanded a division or corps before that day. His self-reassuring vision of a cordial, close relationship with his mentor, Reichenau, however, was shattered only a couple of weeks later when Reichenau was killed in an airplane crash near Leipzig after suffering an apparent stroke or heart attack. With the coming of spring, the Soviets, meaning Stalin, expected another major offensive in the center of the theater in another attempt to take Moscow. This wasn't, however, Hitler's plan. Instead, Hitler intended to concentrate on the southern front, and the objective would be those massive oil fields in and around Maykop, Grozny, and Baku in the Caucasus to deprive the Soviet Union of oil and thereby the power to wage mechanized war. Germany didn't seek to take the oil fields so much to supply itself with petroleum, although it clearly would have done so, but to deprive the Soviets of them. Germany was well supplied at that point in the war with oil. At this point in the, in the war from Romanian oil fields at Ploesti. Almost as good as actually seizing the oil fields and the seaport of Baku, which was never reached, would be to cut the supply line between Baku and the Russian interior where the war was being waged. This has to be understood to appreciate why Stalingrad became so critical to both sides. Now, on the Soviet side, uh, Stalin uh, urged and pushed his commanders to fight back and to conduct a powerful counteroffensive in the spring of 1942. So he directed the Red Army to uh, strike a powerful blow in a sector of the Eastern Front around Kharkov, uh, where the Soviet Southwestern Front 
armies had seized some bridgeheads over the Donitz River. Under Stalin's advisor, Marshal Timoshensko, the remaining reserves in the Soviet army were assembled and prepared to conduct a breakthrough attack that was intended to encircle the German 6th Army around Kharkov. But there were some major flaws with this plan, not least of which was the rather poor quality of the Soviet reserves that were assembled. Their training, equipment, uh, and leadership was very lacking. Uh, When Marshal Timoshensko therefore began his offensive, um, he succeeded at first, but quickly uh, ran into trouble. So on March 12th, excuse me, on May 12th of 1942, the offensive was launched against the German 6th Army, uh, but it was in three days. By the 15th of May, the counteroffensive was halted due to a massive German campaign of airstrikes by the Luftwaffe. The uh, Soviet army quickly was uh, surrounded after a German pincer attack that began two days later uh, and cut off three Soviet field armies from the rest of the Red Army by May 22nd. As had happened the year before, these three armies got increasingly hemmed in uh, into ever smaller, narrow areas. And then about a quarter of a million men were basically exterminated by attacks from all sides, by German armored artillery and machine gun forces, as well as over 7,700 tons of bombs from the German Air Force. They held out for about six days before they were completely crushed. And so the battle ended as an overwhelming German victory uh, with about 280,000 Soviet casualties compared to just about uh, 20,000 for the Germans and their allies. This premature ill-conceived offensive goaded on by Stalin and poorly executed by Timoshenko uh, was to cost the Soviets dearly when the Germans unleashed their offensive shortly uh, after that because their reserves had been squandered, if you will, in this really uh, reckless counterattack that preceded it. And this is a typical example of Stalin uh, injecting himself into the command of the Soviet army and really um, making a mess of it uh, at great cost to his own army. Now back to Stalingrad and its significance. Uh, Much has been made, um, and much was made at the time, of the fact that since the city was named after Stalin, and it had been uh, so named since 1924, this was what gave it such importance to, uh, that both dictators were willing to sacrifice so much to take it or to hold it. 
and I don't doubt that there may have been an element of truth to that belief, but the city had far more importance as the first and foremost major city on the Volga north of the Caspian Sea. Were it to be taken by the Germans, uh, or lost by the Soviets, traffic up and down the Volga would come to a complete stop. Oil and petroleum supplies to the center and north of European Russia would be cut off. Possession of Stalingrad and the Volga would also have presaged a likely regrouping of the German armies of the south to cross the Volga and then swing north to threaten Moscow again from the south and southeast, while Army Group Center fixed the rest of the Red Army in place west of Moscow. To accomplish this strategic goal, the German high command, Hitler, transferred much of the mechanized striking power of the German army to the south, that being tanks, trucks, and other transport, to begin again the same tactics that had proved so successful against the Soviets in 1941. Deep, penetrating strikes by mass tank and motorized infantry formations that encircled and trapped the enemy in massive pockets while they were destroyed or captured. Likewise, vast numbers of aircraft and pilots of the German Luftwaffe were resituated in new air bases in the south to provide ground support and strike deep into Russia. New and improved tanks to supplement the Mark I, II, and III, such as the Mark IV and the Panther, arrived, which were needed to respond to the deadly Soviet T-34, probably the most effective, powerful, and numerous tank in World War II. On the Soviet side, using its massive manpower reserves and ever-escalating production of tanks and aircraft, over 80,000 T-34s would be built over the course of the war. The Red Army prepared for its own spring offensive at the insistence of Stalin. And with what, one might ask, a disastrous thought and soon to be overtaken by events. Like Hitler, Stalin had himself appointed Minister of Defense and Supreme Military Commander over the entire Soviet army in the early stages of the war. Like Hitler, Stalin often exercised significant control over all major decisions down to the operational level. Both had an almost unbelievable obsession over any loss of territory that would account for fantastic loss of life on both sides, as we'll see. Stalin also almost lost the war for the Soviets and resorted to almost unbelievable cruelty to prevent a breakdown in Soviet resistance in this campaign and throughout the war. Hitler's leadership during this campaign was, as Beaver put it, that of an, quote, armchair strategist who, quote, never possessed the qualities for true generalship because he ignored practical problems, such as logistics. Just as important, Hitler's increasing amateur interference in operational and even tactical field operations from bases and bunkers hundreds of miles away from the fighting 
paralyzed local initiative by often highly talented generals like von Manstein, Rundstedt, and von Paulus himself. This later fault eroded and eventually obliterated a long Prussian tradition of giving great latitude to local commanders and encouraging quick, independent thought, initiative, and decision-making. And logistics, well, that was just about everything in a war in Russia. Hitler's strategic plan was also deeply flawed. It neglected the foremost principle and objective of any war, to destroy the opposing army. Once the power to resist has been eliminated, the remaining objectives of a war will fall into the conqueror's hands. As was once said by the Gauls to the Romans when they sacked the city of Rome, Vae victus, woe to the vanquished. But I get ahead of ourselves. The whole campaign on the southern front of Russia was named Fall Blau, or Operation Blue, to the Germans. The invading force was divided into two parts. One, to drive deep into the Caucasus region, to take Baku and the oil fields. The other, to drive to the Don and then the Volga, and cut off the vital river transportation of oil and other vital supplies up and into the interior of Russia. The attack would be made by 1,370,000 soldiers, nearly 2,000 tanks, and over 2,000 aircraft. Army Group A, consisting of the German 1st Panzer Army and the German 11th, 17th, and Romanian 3rd Army, was led initially by General Wilhelm List and later by General Paul von Kleist. Their story is not directly relevant to the Battle of Stalingrad, but from the time the offensive began on the 28th of June, Army Group A succeeded in capturing Rostov, the outlet of the Don River to the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea, a month later, and by August 9th captured the demolished oil fields at Makop. But due to the withdrawal of much of its air support and tanks, it was never able to capture the oil fields at Baku nor those at Grozny. For the rest of the campaign, the extended position of Army Group A, so far and so deep in the south, became increasingly at risk of being cut off from the rest of the German army and its lines of supply by the situation to its north at Stalingrad, as we'll see. Indeed, one of the rationalizations used to justify the fight to the end in Stalingrad was to give time for this formation, Army Group A, to escape isolation and ruin by Soviet thrusts and counterattacks, as we'll see. Now, Army Group B, that's the one we're going to be really concerned with, consisted of the German 2nd and 6th Armies under von Paulus, the 4th Panzer Army under Hoth, the 29th Army Corps, 
the Hungarian 2nd Army, and the Italian 8th Army. By October, it was joined by the Romanian 3rd and 4th Armies. It is the 4th Panzer Army, commanded by General Hermann Hoth, and the 6th Army, commanded by Friedrich von Paulus, that would eventually be the two main forces and the two local commanders charged with taking the city of Stalingrad. In the initial phase of the campaign that began on June 23rd, Army Group B encountered weak resistance by the Soviet 67th, 62nd and 64th Armies, which was easily overcome and in a matter of three days reached the shores of the Don River. A futile counterattack by the Soviet 1st Guards Tank Army was contained, then encircled, and largely destroyed. A similar fate was met by the Soviet 4th Guards Army, hastily composed of the remnants of other shattered Soviet units and inexperienced officers who, though not encircled, were mauled and retreated after sustaining heavy losses, and only succeeded in minimally delaying von Paulus's 6th Army offensive. And it's worth here discussing a little bit about the Soviet system of organization. A number of months earlier, the Soviet high command at the urging of Marshal Zhukov, you'll remember him, the hero of Moscow, uh, decided that the original organization of large field armies robbed the Soviets of needed flexibility and maneuverability, of quick improvisation, if you will that was desperately required in the face of quick, deep-striking German panzer thrusts. Accordingly, Soviet field armies tended to be small, but numerous, often containing only a few divisions. In actuality, they tended to be about the equivalent of German corps units, while German field armies tended to be much larger and more fully integrated with air, infantry, mechanized units, and support. Nonetheless, the Red Army would eventually commit in numbers about 1,715,000 troops to the Southern Front, but that wasn't the case until months into the campaign, due in large part to the failed Kharkov offensive that we talked about a few minutes ago. It took a long time to recover from that, even for the Soviet Union. By August 10th, The Germans had cleared most, but not all, Soviet units on the west bank of the Don River and were roughly 60 miles from Stalingrad on the Volga. At Stalin's insistence, counterattacks were ordered up and down the Don River to attempt to divert and slow the German attack, which resulted in some 200,000 additional casualties, but forced the Germans to maintain significant forces up the Don River, away from the main thrust toward Stalingrad. These areas were often guarded by inferior Romanian, Hungarian, and Italian formations, stiffened up by a few German units who, as we'll see, were often woefully equipped to deal with Soviet tanks and artillery, not to mention motivated red infantry units. But on August 23rd, after a pause to refit and regroup, von Paulus and Hoth restarted their drive toward the Volga and Stalingrad and reached the northern suburbs of Stalingrad the same day, thereby beginning the battle for the city. Stalin had been initially convinced that the operations in the south were a feint or a diversion to cover a renewed 
main German thrust toward Moscow in the center, which in fact never occurred. Another blunder by Stalin. As the days went on, and the threat to the Caucasus and the Volga became more and more apparent, Stalin agreed to allow reinforcement of the southern front, but this would take time. Notwithstanding, Stalin ordered the units of the Red Army to hold their ground at all costs, and even ordered further counterattacks, which were easily contained and beaten off by the Wehrmacht. On July 28th, Stalin issued his famous, or I should really say infamous, Order 227, known in history as the, quote, not one step back order. This order established a systematic method of terror for soldiers, officers, and commanders alike from this date forward. It's worth discussing for a moment this order and its effects to understand how the Soviet army functioned. And I'm going to read to you, word for word, Stalin, part of Stalin's order to give you an idea uh, of, this, um, of this regime, this system of terror that began to be imposed to uh, stiffen the defense of the southern region and particularly Stalingrad. And I'm going to quote, this is Stalin. Quote, the population of our country who love and respect the Red Army start to be discouraged in her and lose faith in the Red Army and many curse the Red Army for leaving our people under the yoke of the German oppressors and itself running east. Some stupid people at the front calm themselves with talk that we can retreat further to the east as we have a lot of territory, a lot of ground, a lot of population, and that there will always be much bread for us. They want to justify the infamous behavior at the front, but such talk is falsehood, helpful only to our enemies. Each commander, Red Army soldier, and political commissar should understand that our means are not limitless. The territory of the Soviet state is not a desert, but people, Workers, peasants, intelligentsia, our fathers, mothers, wives, brothers, and children. The territory of the USSR, which the enemy has captured and aims to capture, is bread and other products for the army, metal and fuel for industries, factories, plants supplying the army with arms and ammunition, railroads. After the loss of Ukraine, Belarus, Baltic Republics, Donetsk, and other areas, we have much less territory, much less people, bread, metal, plants, and factories. We have lost more than 70 million people, more than 800 million pounds of bread annually, and more than 10 million tons of metal annually. Now we do not have predominance over the Germans in human reserves, in reserves of bread, to retreat further means to waste ourselves and to waste, at the same time, our motherland. This leads to the conclusion, it is time to finish retreating. Not one step back should be our main slogan now. Well, that's just a part of the order. To implement this order, it goes on, the Soviet high command was to immediately execute soldiers or officers who withdrew from occupied positions without an order from above. So-called P-2 
penal battalions were to be created in all units of the army of up to 800 prisoners who had been found guilty of a breach of discipline, quote, due to cowardice, and used them on, quote, more difficult sectors of the front to give them an opportunity to redeem by blood their crimes against the motherland, unquote. Finally, each army was to form three to five well-armed defensive squads and put them directly behind, quote, unstable divisions, unquote, and to, quote, require them in case of panic and scattered withdrawals to shoot in place panic mongers and cowards, unquote. To further strengthen resistance, Stalin's chief of his secret police, the NKVD, Lavrenti Beria, formed paramilitary units of the NKVD to root out cowards and traitors in the army, round up and execute deserters, or those caught retreating without orders. It made no difference whether they were common foot soldiers, officers, or even generals. This Beria did, and his subordinates carried on, with diabolical zeal. It was this system, implemented ruthlessly because to fail to implement it would thereby implicate the officer or soldier himself in treasonous conduct, that lie beneath Stalin's famous comment to the American ambassador, Averill Harriman, that, quote, in the Soviet army, it takes more courage to retreat than to advance. The Soviet authorities executed some 13,500 of their own soldiers in the Stalingrad campaign alone, more than an entire division of their armies. Many Soviet soldiers were arrested and summarily shot for failing to shoot at a fleeing comrade, deserting to the enemy or fleeing in panic. Mere conversations suggesting pessimism or any fault in the leadership of a soldier's unit, the army as a whole, or, of course, Stalin, were grounds for relegation to a penal unit, if not summary court-martial and execution. It was this collective responsibility for acts deemed cowardly or treasonous or, quote, anti-Soviet, that gave even the common foot-soldier a tense paranoia and terror. Stalin's Order 227 commanded that it be read aloud to all soldiers and units of the Soviet army. Yet surrender to the Germans was hardly better. Over three million Red Army soldiers out of 5.7 million captured by the Germans during the war died in or on the way to German camps from disease, exposure, starvation, or ill treatment. A Soviet prisoner had no better than a one-in-three chance of survival after capture. Likewise, Nazi propaganda encouraged among German troops a fear of capture by the Russians, where it was asserted that no mercy would be shown, and in this there was much truth. German prisoners were often shot out of hand. Soviet soldiers, enraged by depredations by the Wehrmacht and the SS, frequently machined-gunned lines of prisoners being led away from the front before they could be stopped. Both sides feared mistreatment or death at the hands of the enemy and with justification. And it wasn't just paranoia on the part of Stalin, Beria, and the NKVD that desertion and treason could cost the USSR the war. Both were rampant in the USSR, especially in the Ukraine, where this campaign was conducted. 
Many Ukrainians with long memories of Stalin's ruthless collectivization, expropriations, executions, and famine often welcomed the German invasion and actively collaborated with the German army. Certain ethnic minorities in southern Russia, particularly the Cossacks and Tatars, defected to and actually joined with the Germans in large numbers. 50,000 Soviet citizens fought in the front lines with the 6th Army at Stalingrad against the Soviet Union. And as Beaver put it, quote, Beria's NKVD became frenzied with suspicion when it discovered the scale of the disloyalty. The great military philosopher Karl von Clausewitz, writing after the Napoleonic disaster in Russia in 1812, considered Russia, due to its vast geography and population, an, quote, unconquerable country by military means alone. Another military historian, J.F.C. Fuller, in his book, quote, The Conduct of War, picked up on Clausewitz's musings, pointing out that, and I'm going to quote here from Fuller's book, Quote, the solution lay in the correct choice of the Russian strategical center of gravity, and reference to Clausewitz would have told Hitler where it lay. Had not Clausewitz pointed out that Russia could only be subdued by effects of internal dissension? To defeat Russia in war, one must wage a war on its, quote, inner front, that is to say, with the civilian population and its potential negative impact on the ability of any country, but Russia in particular, to wage war. Speaking of the mass surrenders to the invading Germans in the first year of the war, Fuller quoted General Anders, commander-in-chief of the Free Polish Army, and I quote, Many soldiers, seeing the war as an opportunity for a change of order in Russia, wished for a German victory, and therefore surrendered in great masses. Many high Soviet officers went over to the enemy, offering to fight against the Soviets. Fuller, uh, again, I quote, In 1941, Stalin's oppression was incalculably worse than any czar's. Between 1929 and 1938, some 10 million starved to death in Stalin's collectivization. Therefore, to disintegrate the Colossus, all Hitler had to do was to cross the Russian frontier as a liberator and terminate collectivization. It would have won over to him not only the minorities, but it would also have dissolved Stalin's armies because they so largely consisted of collectivized serfs. This is why Stalin dreaded a German invasion. I quote from Goebbels' diaries, Here's this, this, this little snippet from uh, uh, Goebbels. Quote, Everywhere the Germans were welcomed as liberators by the common people. The Ukrainians looked upon Hitler as the savior of Europe, and the white Russians were eager to fight on the German side. Here's a quote from General Heinz Guderian in his uh, book Panzer Leader. Quote, women came out of their villages and onto the very battlefield, bringing wooden platters of bread and butter and eggs, and, at least in my case, refused to let me move on before I had eaten. With the capture of the Germans of Rostov in this campaign, another uh, writer, Eric Kern, 
wrote this in his book, quote, Dance of Death, and I quote, All over the city, there were people waiting on the streets, ready to cheer and welcome us in. Never before had I seen such a sudden transformation. Of Bolshevism, there was no more. The enemy had gone. Wherever we went, we met laughing and waving people. The Soviet Empire was creaking at the joints. In a more pessimistic way, uh, another uh, German writer, General Gorlitz, who was on the German general staff, uh, wrote this, quote, We lost the war in Kiev when we hoisted the swastika instead of the Ukrainian flag. The fact that the destruction of Bolshevism began soon to mean simply an effort to decimate and enslave the Slav people was the most fatal of all the flaws in the whole campaign. Then, as Fuller points out, quote, came Himmler with his infamous SS. By early in 1942, Dr. Berthold, a leading official of the German administration in Poland, stated, quote, The brutal treatment of the Russians and Ukrainians exceeds anything yet known. Eric Kern, again, corroborates this. He points out that at that time, quote, Bolshevism was politically bankrupt. It was saved by Himmler and his assassins. Светали яблони и груши, поплыли туманы над рекой. Выходила на берег Катюша, на высокий берег, на крутой. Ходила, песню заводила, раскипнула сизого горла, про того, которого любила, про того, чьи письма берегла. Stalin and his communist ministers and party leaders reacted to this threat by cleverly converting the struggle into, quote, the great patriotic war for the motherland rather than as a struggle between communism and fascism. Furthermore, as I've just described, the Soviet leadership was prepared to impose almost unbelievable methods to compel resistance to the invader. And it's worth considering that Russia did collapse due to its inner front in 1917 during the First World War, leading to an Austro-German victory in the East. And again in 1989, the Russian inner front again collapsed, leading to the disintegration of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. On the other hand, purely military attempts to conquer and annihilate the Russian state in 1709 by Sweden's Charles XII, again the subject of an earlier podcast on Poltava, and in 1812 by Napoleon, and again here, have all ended in catastrophe for the invader. The opportunity to defeat the USSR from within can also be demonstrated in microcosm 
by a quick recounting of the career of one of the Soviet Union's greatest leaders in the Great Patriotic War, and one that will have a role in this battle, as we'll see, Marshal Konstantin Rokossovsky. In 1917, Rokossovsky had joined the Bolshevik Party and soon thereafter entered the ranks of the Red Army. During the Russian Civil War, he commanded a cavalry squadron, uh, a, a Red Guards cavalry detachment in the campaigns against the White Guard armies uh, in the Urals. In, 19, in November 1919, he was actually wounded in the shoulder by an opposing officer. Uh, Rokossovsky received the Soviet Union's highest military direction, dire- decoration at the time, the Order of the Red Banner. So you would think, uh, it's hard to think of a more loyal red commander than, than this gentleman. But in August 1937, he became caught up in Stalin's Great Purge and was accused of being a spy. Uh, Vivi Rachevsky, a cellmate of Rokoski after his arrest, wrote in his memoirs that Rokosovsky blamed the persecution of innocent people on the NKVD and was naive in refusing to acknowledge Stalin's role in creating the treacherous environment. He went on to describe Rokosovsky's refusal to sign a false confession. Quote, Those who refused to sign a false statement were beaten up as long as the false statement was not signed. There were steadfast people who stubbornly did not sign, but there were relatively few. Rokosovsky, as he sat with me in the same cell, did not sign a false statement. He was a brave and strong man, tall and broad-shouldered. He, too, was beaten. Alexander Solzhenitsyn reports that Rokosovsky endured two mock shooting ceremonies, where he was taken out at night by a firing squad, but then returned to prison. Living relatives say that Svetlana Pavlovna, wife of Marshal Kazakov, confirmed that he sustained injuries including broken and denailed fingers and cracked ribs on top of enduring mock shooting ceremonies. Rokosovsky never discussed his trial and imprisonment with his family, only telling his daughter, uh, Ariane, that he always wore a revolver after that because he would not surrender alive if they came to arrest him again. Eventually, he was sent to uh, Kresty Prison in Leningrad, where he remained until he was released without explanation on March 22, 1940. Marshal Timoshensko, who'd been named People's Commissar for Defense of the Soviet Union, uh, after the debacle of the Winter War, needed experienced officers uh, to fill command posts for the rapidly expanding Soviet army, and he returned Rokossovsky to the command of the 5th Cavalry Corps at the rank of colonel. So Rokossovsky arose from being a disgraced officer and former prisoner charged with treason through the rank of Major General, to become a Marshal of the Soviet Union, who was finally put in charge of the Victory Parade in Moscow at the conclusion of the war. It's astounding, isn't it? This is life in the world of the Soviet dictator Stalin, which is almost as poisonous and remarkable as the Nazi uh, totalitarian regime in Germany. But let's return now to the actual battle. Um, 
And the Stalingrad campaign can be divided really into three or four distinct phases. Uh, And the first we've already described, the rapid advance of the German army across the Don to Stalingrad on the Volga, and the conquest of much of the southern Ukraine to the brink of the Caucasus by Army Group A. This campaign was conducted on the flat, open plains, or steppe, where well-practiced German military doctrine using fast-moving panzer and mechanized units, aerial support, deep-penetrating thrusts and encirclements were at their best in warm, relatively dry weather. The second phase of the campaign for Army Group B, the attempt to capture the city itself, began as we've seen with the arrival of von Paulus's 6th Army and Houth's 4th Panzer Army at the gates of the city at the end of August 1942. Stalin had initially refused to allow evacuation of the 400,000 civilians in the city cruelly calculating that the army would fight harder to protect the population than it would if the city were abandoned, just as Hitler would calculate with Berlin in 1945. Evacuation of food, railway cars, machinery, and other valuable items was ordered, however, leaving the city population already desperate for food before the fighting even began. Civilians were ordered to assist the army in digging trenches and tank traps before they were finally allowed to leave the area, crossing the Volga River to the east bank. By July and August, however, the Luftwaffe, under the command of Baron Wolfram von Richthofen, began strafing and bombing the Soviet shipping on the Volga, and then heavily bombing the city itself. This Richthofen, by the way, was the cousin of the legendary Manfred von Richthofen, the, the Red Baron ace of World War I fame. In one 48-hour period, German bombers dropped over 1,000 tons of bombs, more than were dropped on London at the height of the Blitz. Meant to terrorize the Russians into evacuating and surrendering the city, this tactic was to backfire in a most spectacular way. In the first place, as we have seen, there would be no tame surrender of the city by the Soviets, no matter how much terror was inflicted on them by the Germans. The German high command seems to have been unaware of Stalin's orders, and in any event, the fanatical resistance that was to come. Secondly, however, the vast, bombed-out shells of buildings and craters negated any advantage the Germans usually had with swift maneuvering tanks and trucks carrying troops to hot points. Streets were rubble and impassable. Red soldiers would infiltrate and hold bombed-out apartment buildings, stores, factories, and hole up in basements, sewers, and anywhere else that provided cover. German infantry would have to flush out Soviet soldiers in close action and hand-to-hand fighting, thanks to the perfect defensive conditions created by the bombing. Von Paulus would be opposed in the street fighting of the city of Stalingrad by General Vasily Chuikov. Beaver describes him in his book in this way, quote, One of the latest, out of the latest disasters in the South, a new breed of commander was starting to emerge. Energetic, 
pitiless, and much less afraid of commissars and the NKVD. Chuikov was one of the most ruthless of this new generation. His explosions of temper were compared to those of Zhukov. His strong, peasant face and thick hair was typically Russian. He also had a robust sense of humor and a bandit laugh, which exposed gold-crowned teeth. Soviet propaganda later portrayed him as the ideal product of the October Revolution. Unquote. Upon reaching the Volga-Stalingrad area on September 12, Chuikov received a message, a summons, to meet with the overall front commander, General Andrei Yeremenko, and the acting Soviet political commissar, Nikita Khrushchev, to come to their headquarters to take over command of the beleaguered 62nd Army, trapped in the city between the advancing Germans from the west and the Volga River at their back. It took him an entire day and night to find their headquarters. Again, Beaver describes the meeting. And quote, uh, quote, the glow from the blazing buildings in Stalingrad was so strong that even on the east bank of the broad Volga there was no need to switch on the headlights of his land lease jeep. When Chuikov finally saw Khrushchev and Yeremenko the next morning, they stated the situation. The Germans were prepared to take the city at any price. There could be no surrender. There was nowhere to retreat to. Chuikov had been proposed as the new commander of the army in Stalingrad. Comrade Chuikov, said Khrushchev, how do you interpret your task? We will defend the city or die in the attempt, he replied. Yaramenko and Khrushchev looked at him and said, that he had understood his task correctly. Unquote. Chuikov would faithfully follow his orders, his task, throughout the whole bloody ordeal. One of Chuikov's first orders were for his forces always to remain within 50 yards of the Germans. It accomplished the dual purpose of making German aerial or artillery bombardment extremely difficult for fear of hitting their own forces. It also kept the German soldiers opposite in a perpetual state of wary anxiety, constantly under sniper and regular infantry fire. As the days, weeks, and months went by, lack of sleep, constant fear of Soviet attack, and on hair-trigger alert for a sudden eruption of fire, wore down the morale and fighting energy of the German infantry. This second phase of the fighting, which lasted for more than two months, was the attempt by the 6th Army to root out the Soviet defenders from the rubble of the city along the Volga. The western suburbs and urban sectors fell steadily into their hands, but with each step forward, resistance stiffened. German thrusts into the last strip of the city along the river met resistance to the death, and worse, Soviet counterattacks that often retook captured buildings and blocks for which they had paid dearly in casualties. There's no way in a narrative this short to describe the block by block, street by street, advances and retreats by both sides, but in a broad sense this is what happened. Urban warfare in this bombed-out city with both armies in close quarters Indeed, Chuikov called his tactics hugging the enemy, negated all the usual German advantages in blitzkrieg tactics, slashing panzer attacks, 
encirclements annihilation. Tanks were formidable weapons in the fighting, to be sure, but maneuver by mechanized units was negligible. The rubble blocked most streets to tanks until it was moved, piece by piece, to allow tanks to roll up to point-blank range. Many were destroyed on both sides by anti-tank guns, bombs, grenades, and mines. Chuikov was a tactical improviser and a keen observer of what practical advantages would serve his soldiers well in these conditions. He conceived of a tactical system of strong points that would channel attacking German tanks and infantry into predictable killing zones where they would be cut down. Buildings still standing, or partially so, were packed with infantry, anti-tank rifles, and machine guns that would repel casual, small group attacks and invite advances into much quieter, nearby, rubble-strewn streets. These channel attacks were then decimated by increasingly well-practiced techniques by the defenders, whose inferior numbers were made up for by concealed defenses and clever traps. Many of the channels were streets that had been mined the night before by Soviet sappers. Trench mortars in front and around the advancing column, headed by panzer tanks, went into action, dropping bombs just behind the tanks to separate and isolate them from the infantry behind. The tanks would then be targeted by the anti-tank rifles at close range, unmolested by the infantry. Chuikov also increased the intensity and frequency of night attacks. His soldiers, counterattacking in the darkness, could not be targeted from the air by the Luftwaffe bombers and strafing fighters. Furthermore, it deprived German infantry units of sleep and increased anxiety. Decoy night flares were shot off to simulate an impending attack. Tiny U-2 biplanes that would have been shot out of the skies in daylight, known as sewing machines by the Germans due to the noise of their tiny engines, dived to treetop level and dropped a small 400-kilogram bomb into German foxholes and hiding places, keeping up the pressure. Chuikov recognized early on that street fighting in Stalingrad would vault the submachine gun, the grenade, and the sniper's rifle to prominence as weapons of choice. One of his favorite weapons, and what became a favorite of the Soviet infantry in Stalingrad, was the PPSH-41, a Soviet machine gun. It was nicknamed the Papasha, Uh, by Soviet soldiers um, because of the acronym, the PPSH, but also uh, had a double meaning, the Russian word for daddy. Weighing about 12 pounds with a loaded 71-round drum and 9.5 pounds with a loaded 35-box magazine, the Papasha is capable of a rate of about 1,000 rounds per minute, a very high rate of fire in comparison to most other military submachine guns of World War II. It's a durable, low-maintenance weapon made out of low-cost, easily-obtained components, primarily stamped steel, metal, and wood. Though 35-round curve box magazines were available from 1942, 
the average Soviet infantryman in World War One carried the Papashka with an original 71 round drum magazine. It kind of looks like the Thompson submachine guns from American gangster films of the 1930s. <clears throat> the German weapon was actually older and most ways inferior to the Papasha. It was an evolved submachine gun weapon from earlier prototypes and was the main submachine gun in service in the German army from 1938 to 1945. In the early phases of World War II, the Germans produced relatively few of these weapons, and they were parceled out gingerly throughout the army. The Battle of Stalingrad, where entire Russian units armed with submachine guns outgunned their German counterparts in short-range urban combat, caused a shift in tactics, and by the end of World War II, the MP-40, the German weapon, and its derivatives were being issued to entire assault platoons on a limited basis. The MP-40 was designed in 1938 by Heinrich Fulmer, with its inspiration from its predecessor, the MP-38. The MP-40 were open-bolt, blowback-operated automatic arms. The only mode of fire was fully automatic, but the relatively low rate of fire enabled single shots with controlled trigger pulls. Although the MP-40 was generally reliable, a major weakness was its 32-round magazine. The single-feed insert resulted in increased friction against the remaining cartridges, moving upwards toward the feed lips, occasionally resulting in feed failures. This problem was exacerbated by the presence of dirt or other debris. Stalingrad was made for the submachine gun. Close urban warfare where long-range firing was rarely the case could spray a room, a cellar, a narrow alley with bullets at the rate of a thousand rounds a minute. The sound of MP-40s and papashas were heard constantly, day and night, as the fighting went on by infantry locked in a death match. As Beaver points out, quote, much of the fighting consisted not of major attacks, but of relentless, lethal little conflicts. The battle was fought by assault squads, generally six or eight strong, armed with knives and sharpened spades for silent killing, as well as machine guns, submachine guns and grenades. It was an infantry battle, mainly often fought in tight quarters, often hand-to-hand or at point-blank range. And here the advantage lay with the defenders, even though outnumbered and often outgunned. Ambush, sniper fire, hit-and-run tactics, raiding, night attacks in pitch-black darkness were daily occurrences. Occasionally, von Paulus would pull back his forces and summon the Luftwaffe to carpet-bomb Red Army strongpoints, sometimes with great effect, but often without. Soviet soldiers and their officers took shelter in cellars and under the remains of fallen buildings and then retook their positions when the bombing stopped. Casualties on both sides were fantastic and conditions became inhuman. Polluted water sickened soldiers on both sides. Lack of decent food. Ambulances and evacuations of the wounded, especially on the Soviet side, were often non-existent and the wounded simply died for lack of care. Evacuation of Soviet soldiers to the opposite bank of the Volga brought them under aerial, artillery, or machine gun fire by the Germans in the city, and even when they made it to the opposite shore, medical facilities were overwhelmed with wounded who often died of neglect on the floors or even outside in the rough. 
As Soviet casualties in the 62nd Army mounted, reinforcements were ferried across the Volga, followed by NKVD blocking units to the river's edge to discourage any thought of fleeing by the new arrivals. Into the meat grinder they would go and join their comrades, with the knowledge that once in the city there was no retreat or surrender, just fighting and death. German soldiers were appalled by the fanatical resistance of the Red Army and loathed the street fighting. As the weather became colder and rain mixed with snow began to appear, their anxiety of having to spend another winter in Russia began to spread. German soldiers' letters home uh, were heavily censored and sometimes not delivered due to their pessimistic content. Yet try as they might, they simply lacked sufficient manpower and firepower to drive the Soviets into the Volga and take the city. On one occasion, a German unit actually reached the Volga in the city, but was then driven back in a counterattack. Another Soviet advantage that began to tell was their artillery, parked on the opposite side of the Volga, out of reach of German infantry. More and more guns were moved into range, sighted, and added to a growing barrage descending on German strongpoints aided by forward observers. While the Luftwaffe would frequently bomb these targets, they couldn't silence the majority of them, and those destroyed were soon replaced by more and more. In effect, the Soviet command continued to feed infantry units into the city across the Volga to replace and strengthen the 62nd Army, whose commander, Chuikov, frequently had to move his headquarters from one point to another when the Germans came within a block or two of its secret location. The air in the cellars became so dank and stale that it was impossible to light cigarettes or candles in them. Beaver relates a description of what the fighting was like in September that involved a huge concrete grain silo near the Volga River. The 58th Panzer Corps under General Hoth had cut off the shattered but still standing building. Inside were remnants of the Soviet 35th Guards Division, reinforced by a Marine Infantry Platoon, and here's how he describes it. Quote, They had two old Maxim machine guns and two of the long Russian anti-tank rifles, which they used to fire at at a German tank when an officer and an interpreter appeared under a flag of truce to ask them to surrender. German artillery then ranged on the vast structure, preparing for the ground for the Saxon 94th Infantry Division. The 50-odd defenders fought off 10 assaults on the 18th of September. The conditions in which they continued to fight over the next two days were terrible. They were choked with dust and smoke. Even the grain in the elevator had caught fire, and they soon had almost nothing left to drink or fill the barrel jackets of the Maxim guns. All their grenades and anti-tank projectiles had been expended by the time more German tanks arrived to finish them off on the 20th of September. Both Maxims were put out of action. The defenders, unable to see inside the elevator for smoke and dust, communicated by shouting to each other through parched throats. When the Germans broke in, they fired at sounds, not at objects. That night, with only a handful of ammunition left, the survivors broke out. The wounded had to be left behind. Vasily Grossman, a correspondent and writer for Red Star, the Soviet Army newspaper, wrote about battles and conditions in which the Soviet Army fought between 1941 and 1945. 
In one of his dispatches, he described, quote, fighting in the brick-strewn, half-demolished rooms and corridors of apartment blocks where there might still be a vase of withered flowers or a boy's homework open on the table. Beaver points out, quote, close-quarter combat in ruined buildings, bunkers, cellars, and sewers was soon dubbed a Rattenkrieg by the German soldiers. That literally means a rat's war. It possessed a savage intimacy that appalled their generals, who felt that they were rapidly losing control over events. The enemy is invisible, wrote General Strecker to a friend. Ambushes out of basements, well remnants, hidden bunkers, and factory ruins produce heavy casualties among our troops. The German high command's obsession with taking the city resulted essentially in the 6th Army's being fixed in a static position, flanked by other armies up and down the river on its flanks. These armies, largely of allied auxiliary forces of Romanians and Italians, were regarded with contempt by German soldiers and officers alike. Morale was poor in them. They were poorly equipped, especially in anti-tank weaponry uh, that they would need to repulse any Soviet armored attack. Yet there they were, week in, week out, bivouacked along the Don and the Volga, waiting. The presence of these weak flanking armies to the right and left of the 6th Army presented the Soviet high command in Moscow with a tempting concept breakthrough and encirclement of the entire 6th Army. Zhukov had personally visited the front incognito in September and taken stock of the dire conditions there and desperate fighting. On his return to Moscow, he bluntly reported to Stalin and the chief of the general staff of the Soviet Armed Forces, Alexander Vasilevsky, that the Stalingrad front needed reinforcements. He also mentioned to Vasilevsky that a new solution needed to be found to address the situation in Stalingrad and on the southern front generally. Stalin overheard the remark and asked both of them to immediately work out a plan. It's likely the brilliant Zhukov already had the basic design of Operation Uranus in his head, having closely observed the front himself and, as importantly, discussed the situation with his generals at the front while he was there. The rough plan was presented to Stalin very quickly thereafter. He approved and, for the first time, ceded operational control to the two generals he trusted most.
those of you who may not know that tune, that beautiful tune, it's called Moscow Nights. The new solution would not directly attack the 6th Army in Stalingrad. Not yet. Rather, there would be two pincer movements, northeast and southwest of Stalingrad. These thrusts, the main one from upriver on the Don, and a smaller but still formidable downriver on the Volga, would meet and link up west of Stalingrad, encircling the 6th Army still fighting and fixed in place there. The fact that the flanks of the 6th Army were comprised of mainly Romanian, but also Hungarian and Italian armies, did not go unnoticed by Zhukov, and he added and added to the potential for success. Further, Zhukov proved himself a consummate master of deception in the months before the offensive was launched in November. Just as with Moscow, the Germans were unaware of masses of Soviet reserve infantry, tanks, and aircraft, freshly trained and equipped with winter gear, fur-lined gloves, fur hats, pleated coats, and boots. As they were moved forward, under cover of darkness, or camouflaged in forests and under other cover to avoid detection by the Luftwaffe. On November 13th, Stalin gave final approval to launch the offensive. This would be the first major campaign since Moscow in which he had abstained from meddling and interfering with the operational plans and disposition of forces. And on November 19th, the next phase of the Battle of Stalingrad began. During the night, Soviet sappers, in white camouflage, quietly advanced forward, removing mines to open the way for the tanks and trucks behind them. Dawn broke with a freezing, heavy white mist, further obscuring the front. At 7.20 a.m., massed Soviet Katushka rockets, howitzers, and artillery loaded, some 3,500 weapons in all. And at 7.30 a.m., after receiving the code word siren, an enormous eruption of Soviet artillery and rockets broke like a thunderclap. Some soldiers on the receiving end described the detonations as similar to an earthquake. The sound was so intense that the 22nd Panzer Division, 30 miles away, could hear it. Soviet rifle divisions advanced next after an hour's bombardment in the northern sector into the Romanian positions. Initially beaten off, a second assault, this time with tanks, followed, and then entire armored divisions followed. Lacking anti-tank weapons in any significant numbers, the Romanian defenders were quickly overwhelmed by Soviet T-34s. Within an hour, the 5th Tank Army blew through the Romanian 3rd Army's defenses, creating a gaping hole. 
as the mist cleared, the Soviet 2nd, 16th, and 17th Air Armies joined the attack. Within hours, Soviet tanks were pouring through around the town of Klitskaya, as if a dam had broken. Southward they moved with infantry as the Romanians began to rout, spearheading the encircling movement that would arc around to their left. In the ensuing hours, a panic began within the Romanian army, with pockets resisting, but then annihilated. Von Paulus and his staff frantically sent German panzers of the weak, understrength 48th Panzer Corps to try and block the breakouts, but by now a blizzard descended in the late hours, and nightfall began at 3.30 in the afternoon. The panzers were also hampered by lack of fuel and ammunition. Beginning the fight with less than a hundred serviceable tanks, the 48th was engaged and overwhelmed. The 22nd Panzer Division was almost completely destroyed. Too little, too late, these German reinforcements were unable to contain the spearheads and had to retreat back towards Stalingrad to avoid being decimated themselves. Furthermore, more attacks erupted to the south by the Soviet 21st Army and then the 65th Army further south and then the 24th Army just to the northeast of Stalingrad. Chuikov and his 62nd Army in the city also attacked, keeping the main bulk of the 6th Army pinned down. Finally, the following day, November 20th, downstream of Stalingrad, the Soviet 64th and 57th armies rolled into action, piercing through further weak Romanian and Hungarian armies, and curling to the right and the north toward Kalach, the rendezvous point with the armies to the north, curling to the south. The Romanian 6th Corps collapsed within hours, exposing the flanks of German reserves. By November 21st, day three of the offensive, Soviet forces had penetrated at different points up to 30 miles deep. The remains of the Romanian army along the Don, northwest of Stalingrad, had been isolated and circled and destroyed by the Red Army, or was in full retreat, leaving a massive gap where it had once been. In the land area between the Volga and the Don, where Stalingrad was situated, the masses of Soviet armor and infantry from the north and south began squeezing von Paulus's 6th and Hoth's 4th panzer armies, flanking them on either side. Individual corps, divisions, and battalions of the German armies were rapidly forced to either retreat into the Stalingrad pocket or to the south, the Chir River, and beyond. Like a separating amoeba, thinning out in the middle, the lines of communication and supply to Stalingrad eventually burst into two bubbles, north and south. The two spearheads from the southeast and northwest met at Kalach on November 22nd, completing the encirclement of all of the 6th Army and much of the 4th Panzer Army. Hitler ordered the forces within the Stalingrad pocket which included most of the city and a number of towns and villages between the Volga and Don rivers, and two airfields, to establish an all-around defensive system that he called Fortress Stalingrad. Under no circumstances were the forces within the so-called fortress to attempt to break out and rejoin the main army group south. Here again, the obsession with holding territory. 
In this, Hitler was making the same mistake that Stalin had made time and again in his struggle against the Nazis in 1941. Stalin had ordered vast formations of the Red Army to hold their ground at all costs and to fight to the last man during Operations Barbarossa and Tycoon, leading to the capture or death of millions of soldiers and the loss of vast amounts of war material. Their mutual obsession with holding territory defied basic military doctrine to avoid encirclement. The difference was that Stalin could and did make up for massive losses. Hitler couldn't. Hitler's generals had managed to convince the Fuhrer to pull back and retreat before Moscow in 1941, when the Soviets had counterattacked and saved the Wehrmacht from obliteration there and then. But those generals had been cashiered and replaced with more pliant generals, with an, quote, excessive regard for the chain of command, like von Paulus and Hitler had taken over as the supreme commander in 1942. Both Stalin and Hitler were military dilettantes when it came to logistics and the science of war, and their soldiers paid the price on a fantastic scale. This third phase of the Battle of Stalingrad was essentially complete in just four days, as the complete encirclement of the German armies in the pocket of Stalingrad was complete. But the battle would rage on for another four months of on-and-off fighting as the Soviet ring was tightened and the Germans reacted to this debacle by attempting to rescue them. Operation Winter Storm would be the fourth phase of the battle and would be the German answer to the encirclement led by the best general Hitler still had, Erich von Manstein. If you have listened to our podcast, The Battle of France, 1940, you'll recall that it was von Manstein's genius that had conceived of the brilliant plan to massively encircle the Franco-British army in northern France and Belgium in 1940 that led to the evacuation at Dunkirk and the eventual capitulation of France. Now Hitler reassigned him to the southern front and gave him the task of rescuing the Sixth Army and the whole situation in the Ukraine and the Caucasus that he, Hitler, had himself created. Nonetheless, Hitler's meddling would still not stop. You'll remember that Army Group A had driven deep into the southern, uh, into southern Russia, into the Caucasus region, and this entire vast army was also in danger of being cut off from the rest of the southern army now that the Red Army was sitting on the western side of the Volga and Don rivers, poised to strike even further to the west and south. Von Manstein was given command of what became known as the Army of the Don, the remaining part of Army Group B outside the pocket and Army Group A, which had to be quickly withdrawn to rectify the perilous situation. On November 24th, von Manstein felt that if the 6th Army in the pocket could be adequately supplied by air, with food, fuel, and ammunition, it could hold out for quite some time. It was estimated that it would require some 700 tons of supply each day to do so. Hermann Goering fatuously assured Hitler that it could be done, despite the worsening weather, Soviet air defenses around the perimeter, and a growing Soviet air force in the skies. 
In fact, the Luftwaffe would never come close to managing such a task with the two airstrips that were within the pocket. Von Manstein quickly came to the conclusion that a corridor to the 6th Army would have to be opened to allow ground transport of supplies and reinforcements to get to Stalingrad, and on December 12th, he launched his attack with the 4th Panzer Army. The attack caught the Soviets by surprise and initially made great headway, but by the following day, resistance stiffened. The Soviet 4th Mechanized and 13th Tank Corps counterattacked, slowing down the advance, while in the meantime, a second breakout offensive up the Don, known as Little Saturn, was prepared and then launched on December 16th. Little Saturn was a new offensive by the crack Soviet 1st and 3rd Guards armies and the Soviet 6th Army against the Italian 8th Army. Once again, resistance by the Italians, like the Romanians, was stiff for a day, but within two days the Italian 8th Army was partially overrun and in full retreat. The presence of the Soviet armies on his flank and poised to maneuver around his rear and capture Rostov, would have completely cut off von Manstein's forces and everything east and south of the Don. The only chance of saving the 6th Army was to allow it to withdraw from the city and join in the attack from the east, to meet up with von Manstein's thrust from the west. But once again, Hitler refused to allow the 6th Army to break out of Stalingrad. By December 19th, Von Manstein's forces were within 30 miles of von Paulus's perimeter. German troops inside the pocket could hear the fighting from their bombed-out strongholds and foxholes, but no order came to move in that direction. Von Manstein sent his chief intelligence officer into the pocket by air to brief von Paulus of the situation. Von Paulus was skeptical that his debilitated army, now on the brink of starvation and under constant attack by Chuikov and other formations ringing his position, short of fuel and ammunition, was even capable of mounting a serious attack to break out. Furthermore, neither he nor von Manstein were, were willing to disobey Hitler's direct orders not to retreat from the city. A blizzard had developed over the past day or so, and the 6th Army was now down to about 70 serviceable tanks. Von Manstein reluctantly ordered the 4th Panzer Army to break off the engagement on December 23rd and retreat to the south bank of the Chir River to defend against the continuing Operation Little Saturn threat to his command. By Christmas 1942, the 6th Army was on its own, with no chance of rescue from the outside. The only chance of survival was if the Luftwaffe could continue to supply the army until the spring, and that was not much of a chance at all. While the Red Army continued in pursuit of von Manstein's retreating forces, the ring around Stalingrad remained impenetrable and began to tighten. 
On December 28th, Stalin gave Marshal Rokossovsky, the same one that had been arrested and tortured, as you remember earlier, uh, the task of closing the ring and annihilating the Germans in Stalingrad. By January 7th, the Soviets sent emissaries to von Paulus asking for surrender, which von Paulus rejected. The remaining German forces outside the city now began digging in within the city itself to consolidate its position, while the Red Army picked off villages and towns in the outskirts, first one airfield and then the other, cutting off all supplies, however meager, from the Luftwaffe. Conditions were once again subhuman, but this time more for the Germans. Soldiers starved to death, or died of exposure by the hundreds as the days went by. There was no fuel. Tanks sat immobile as makeshift pillboxes. On January 22nd, von Paulus signaled to the high command requesting permission to surrender, but was again refused. Famously, Hitler made von Paulus a field marshal, a gesture which suggested that he commit suicide rather than give himself up or his army, as prisoners. A final push by the Soviets on January 26th cut the city into two pockets, north and south, and on the 28th into three pockets. Unbelievably, fighting continued. On January 31st, Soviet forces found the entrance to von Paulus' headquarters and captured him there. The central pocket collapsed later the same day, and the northern pocket on February 3rd. The battle was finally over. The people of Germany had never been told that the Sixth Army was actually surrounded until the end of January. On January 31st, radio broadcasts in Germany were interrupted to announce the defeat of the German army in Stalingrad. It was the first time the Nazi government had ever actually acknowledged a defeat to the German people, and what a catastrophe it was. 91,000 cold, starving, lice-infested German prisoners of war were captured and led off to prison camps. Many were shot along the way by Soviet soldiers, maddened by hate and grief at the privations and death forced upon them by the German invasion and the savage fighting in Stalingrad. Many froze to death. As for the Ukrainians fighting with the Sixth Army, Berias and KVD was waiting for them, what was left of them, and no mercy was shown. There would be no prison camps for them, merely icy mass graves. About half of the German prisoners actually made it to prison camps, where they were enslaved, most of them for the rest of their lives. On a visit to Moscow in 1955, the German Chancellor Adenauer persuaded the Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, himself a veteran of Stalingrad, to release the remaining German prisoners who were still alive. Less than 6,000 were left to return home. For those Germans who knew they had sons, brothers, or husbands fighting in Stalingrad, 
the radio announcement of the total defeat was like a death sentence. A wave of foreboding and grim, if private, realization that Germany would likely lose the war swept across the country with a shudder. Thoughts of Soviet reprisals, if and when the end came, was a fearful nightmare that lingered long after the announcement and was actually borne out when the Red Army entered Germany in 1945. For the Soviets, there was exaltation, and tributes came from its allies. President Roosevelt, writing to Stalin, exclaimed, quote, On behalf of the people of the United States, I want to express to the Red Army on its 25th anniversary our profound admiration for its magnificent achievements, unsurpassed in all history. General Douglas MacArthur the U.S. Supreme Allied Commander uh, in the Southwest Pacific, said, quote, The scale and grandeur of the Russian effort mark it as the greatest military achievement in all history. Frank Knox, the U.S. Secretary of the Navy, said this, quote, We and our allies owe and acknowledge an everlasting debt of gratitude to the armies and people of the Soviet Union. And Henry Stimson, the U.S. Secretary of War, said, quote, History knows no greater display of courage than that shown by the people of the Soviet Union. In 1946, the city of Stalingrad, which had been just totally destroyed, began being reconstructed. Uh, and it included a massive statue and memorial uh, outside the city, which can be seen to this day, a real example of Soviet-style uh, uh, art and architecture. In 1961, Nikita Khrushchev changed the name of the city to Volgograd uh, as part of his program of de-Stalinization following Stalin's death, uh, reducing the cult of personality, as he called it, by the Soviet dictator. When he did so, it, it was controversial given Stalingrad's importance and fame as a symbol of resistance during World War II. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a lively debate whether the name of the city actually should be changed back to Stalingrad for that reason. But it wasn't, and it remains uh, to this day uh, the city of Volgograd. I would like to uh, end this podcast with... Wait for me. It's a it's a poem written by a uh, by Konstantin uh, Simonov, um, a Russian poet, and is one of the best known uh, poems of Russian the Russian side in World War Two. It's very touching, and in the English translation, it goes like this: Wait for me, and I'll come back. Wait with all you've got. Wait when dreary yellow rains tell you you should not. Wait when snow is falling fast. Wait when summer's hot. Wait when yesterdays are past. Others are forgot. Wait when from that far-off place letters don't arrive. Wait when those with whom you wait doubt 
if I'm alive. Wait for me, and I'll come back. Wait in patience, yet, when they tell you off by heart that you should forget. Even when my dearest ones say that I am lost, even when my friends give up, sit and count the cost. Drink a glass of bitter wine to the fallen friend. Wait, and do not drink with them. Wait until the end. Wait for me, and I'll come back, dodging every fate. What a bit of luck, they'll say, those that would not wait. They will never understand how, amidst the strife, by your waiting for me, dear, you had saved my life. Only you and I will know how you got me through. Simply, you knew how to wait. No one else but you. And so we end this podcast with one of the most astounding and incredible battles and experiences in the human existence. The Battle of Stalingrad that truly bent the arc of history.